Requesting connection. Established. Encrypted. We're live. The show you've been asking for. Advice, technology, and community. Linux first, all others second. This is Ask Noah. Live from Multispeed Technologies, the Ask Noah show starts right now. This is the show where we came to do all the things on Linux they said couldn't be done and take your questions on how to do the same. The phone lines are open this hour to be a part of the program. It is a free call, 1-855-450-NOAH. That's 1-855-450-6624, or send an email to live at asknoahshow.com. My name is Noah Chalaya. I am your host. Delighted to be here with you as another episode of the Ask Noah Show kicks off this hour. Joining me again is Mr. Steve Oven. Steve, welcome to the program. Hi, Noah. Thanks for having me back again. Yeah, thanks for taking the time to be here again. So I want to start by talking about our element bot or matrix bot, whatever you want to call it. It was put out by the community. And one of the things that I forgot to mention is that this bot is available 24 seven, 365. So if you send your questions to the questions bot, which you can find at questions, colon It's real simple. It will put those questions right in front of my face and Steve and I will address them as they come in. Now, if you think about it on the rerun, you say, dang it, I missed my opportunity to send questions to the questions bot. Well, fear not. The questions bot is there 24-7 when I get into the studio. Then the next week, uh, the questions bot will have those questions, again, right up in front of my face. And so if you have questions, get them answered. You'll see the bot remind you at the beginning of the show. The German healthcare system may be switching to Matrix. We're there a long time ago. Our first email comes in from Patrick. Patrick writes in and says, Hi, Noah. On episode 241, you suggested some Gmail alternatives. One of the alternatives that you mentioned was ProtonMail from Switzerland. In my opinion, it's not that great of an alternative for Gmail. The Swiss privacy laws are not as good as their reputation. ProtonMail is required to cooperate with the Swiss security authorities by law. See here, and then he links to uh, the ProtonMail data laws. Uh, Greetings from Australia, Patrick. So I would start by saying this, Patrick. I would start by telling you that uh, no software is going to be completely immune um, from the pressure of the government in the country from which it's hosted in. However, I would also add to that that the technical design of ProtonMail makes that somewhat irrelevant. ProtonMail doesn't have my private security keys. Therefore, I don't have to even trust Proton, uh, ProtonMail, let alone trust the government in which the country in which ProtonMail resides in. It's Far too many steps removed. I'm the only one that has access to those private keys, and they're only unlocked with my very long passphrase that exists only inside of my noggin. And so if the Swiss government can come to ProtonMail and they can say, hey, ProtonMail, we want Noah's data. And ProtonMail will say, okay, we have no choice but to comply. Here you go. Here are the scrambled hashes that we have on our server. Well, but ProtonMail. We want to decrypt all of this. We want to read Noah's email. Well, you'd have to go talk to him about that because we don't have his private key. That only exists inside of his – the private key, I guess, is is, is encrypted uh, with a passphrase that exists inside of his head. So you're going to go have to get inside of there. Um, we can't give that to you. We'd love to give that to you, but we can't give that to you. So to a certain degree, it doesn't matter, I guess, is what I'm trying to say. Steve, you've been a uh, user of ProtonMail basically as long as there's been a ProtonMail. What are your thoughts on this? So I actually took some time to read through uh, a, a good chunk of what the, the link had to say. So the link is in German, so it's not – for our German listeners, um, 
have at it. I happened to speak German, so I was able to kind of pick through it. it I thought it was kind of interesting. It was I, I found it a bit slanted in the way that it was written, but brought up some interesting points. I think that if I'm going to go with someone who's hosting my mail, which I do, I'm comfortable with this because, like you said, we've got the GPG keys that are encrypted and the way that you can rotate your own keys when you want to uh, on top of the fact that they're very clear about the fact that if you mess up your key like we can't help you that gives me some level of confidence that they're not you know adding another key on top of it because with with um with encryption you can have a second key to the data in and that's also part of the mechanism built into it to allow you to rotate your keys if you need to um one thing that did occur to me, though, I'm not sure that things like the the beta for Proton Drive and the calendar are covered by the GPG key because those are covered. But like the the encryption is covered per mailbox when you set one up. It asks you what type of encryption you want to use, and it kind of gives you a breakdown of what what options there are. I don't recall that for your for your calendar, and so I guess if you're worried about people having access to your calendar that might be something that you might put on a next cloud or something of that nature, which is actually what we do at my house. Rosanna, my wife and I, we use a next cloud calendar to kind of keep in sync. Um, so there are, I, I'm comfortable with it from the standpoint of someone else is already hosting this and you take some level of risk when you do that anyways. Absolutely. I, if, if you look at the landscape options out there, I don't know that there is another provider that is doing more to try to ensure the privacy of your email than ProtonMail is. Andien is very open and honest about what they can do, what they can't do. Um, and when people come to try to circumvent, and this is governments, right? When governments come to try to circumvent ProtonMail, he's been pretty open and honest about, hey, we're going we're gonna to fight the good fight. And so if I had to trust a company to do that, I... I, I just I don't know who else I would trust. But the idea of the episode was to give you ideas of other alternatives out there. I think ProtonMail, I spent probably the least amount of time focusing on ProtonMail, partly because I think most people have heard of it, but also because we've talked about it all the time. And again, Andy comes on this program frequently. Uh, so if you're looking for other alternatives, I'd invite you to check out that episode. But uh, for me personally, I, I trust ProtonMail almost unequivocally. I will point out that in the chat room, which you can visit at geeklab.ninja, uh, there's a discussion unfolding on exactly where the security begins and ends. It's important to understand that because if you're sending an email, for example, from Google or from Yahoo or from Fastmail, uh, any of these other providers that aren't supporting end-to-end encryption and are sending it over the SMT protocol, obviously there's an easy way to intercept that mail. So the only time that that mail is truly encrypted is when it's going to from a Proton mail address to another Proton mail address. At that point, uh, the, the email is encrypted. Now I'll add to that and say that at least with, even if it's coming over SMTP, at least the mailbox, the storage of the mail is all encrypted. And so should an attacker uh, try to compromise your email box, unless they were able to capture that email in transit or, and this is another point of attack, they're able to capture the outbound email. So they compromise the person who sent the email to you. If they're 
unless they're able to do that, they wouldn't be able to get access to your email. Of course, you could reverse the process and say they wouldn't be able to see your sent mail because that's encrypted. But if they were able to compromise the recipient's mailbox, then obviously they might be able to get your message that way. So if you want pure encrypted communication, don't use email, right? Go over to something like Element, which is designed for end-to-end encryption or Signal or Wire. But uh, but as it relates to email, I, I don't know that you're going to do much better than ProtonMail. Our second email comes in from Ben. Ben writes in and says, hey, no, on the last or at least a very recent episode of Ask Noah, you spent some discussion about Apple and its privacy stance and motivations more generally. I think that in general, the problem with Apple is the problem that all publicly traded companies optimize for a single thing, and that isn't privacy. It isn't the welfare of their customers. Charlie Stross had a good talk about this and about corporations as slow AI. And then he gives a link to that talk, which we'll have linked for you in the show notes. What I, I would tell you, again, my answer to that is a company's highest goal should be to serve its customers well. And so in the case of Apple, it may very well be that serving its customers well means cooperating with local governments and local officials to make sure that they can continue to produce a very large-scale device that that works with every major manufacturer and every software vendor because they're working at a scale in which they can do that. One of the things that I think about all the time, and we try to at Ultra Speed Technology, skate to where the puck is going to be. And so what we what we talk about in our planning and vision casting meetings is obviously not where technology is today, but where is it going to be in 10 or 15 years? And so when we when we have those meetings and we talk about those things, what we see is a future in which you're a business owner and you go to start up a business. You don't need to hire a company like AltaSpeed per se to come set up your network and manage your Wi-Fi and all of that because that's probably being done at that point by your ISP. They already handle the network farther upstream. Now we have the ability to have all of these devices connected to the Internet and indeed managed uh, over the Internet. And if we can do that today as a managed service provider, there's no reason that the ISPs won't eventually step into that space. When they do, that part of our business is probably going to go poof, right? And so then you start looking at, okay, what about the end user devices? Are there any management needed on those things? Well, we look at what Microsoft is doing and okay, they're moving up to the cloud. You look at what Apple is doing. You go into a store and purchase an Apple device and that's all tied to the cloud. So there's a very real future in which a, a future business owner or a future person goes into their mobile service provider and purchases a device for $500, $600, $700,000, whatever it is. And they have that device. It's tied to the internet because the service provider is paying them. They're fine paying a monthly fee for that. They don't care if they have administrative access to it. They don't worry about data storage or backing up their data because that's all handled by the cloud. And they're fine paying a monthly fee for that. In that scenario, in that reality, uh, they've gotten to a point where they don't need Independent contractors, they can manage everything themselves. They just pay a monthly fee and they have access to a device. The only reason that works, the only reason that that model is a potential is because Apple can go to all of the software manufacturers and all of the companies and say, hey, you're a hotel chain. Why don't you make an app for our platform? And then your hotel won't have to pay, you know, these IT companies and won't have to pay to maintain all this infrastructure, won't have to pay all of these service charges. You just buy the I whatever, install the app, and it will just work. But in order to get those hotel chains to sign on, fast food chains to sign on, all of these larger businesses and to make software and to, to host their platforms 
on Apple's platform, they have to be a big enough company to do that. And so if that's their goal, if that's what they're skating to, and that's how they define serving their customers well, then I think Apple is on a really great path. Where I think that misaligns with users is if they come out with a message of we care about your privacy, and then they take steps to do something that does not benefit the privacy of the user in any way, shape, or form. In fact, it does the very opposite, and the motivation behind that is primarily to cooperate with investigative uh, agencies or governments. That's a, that's to me that's an impedance mismatch, and I no longer think that that. Uh, if 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 a customer believed that they were being served well by Apple because they cared about their privacy, and now that's no longer happening, then there's an impedance mismatch, and that's where I take issue with uh, with with the decision that Apple is making. But to your point, yeah, I entirely agree. I think that when you're a publicly traded company, you do what's in the best interest of your stockholders because that's how you make money, and that's ultimately the goal of any corporation. But I would again, I would. Come full circle and say that the best way to make money or the, the, the long way successful way to make money is to serve your customers well. And you need to understand what it is that they're asking and what they want and then execute on that. And so to the extent that we've been able to do that at a much, much smaller scale, I, at AltaSpeed, I, I've seen that be successful. And so I question why when a bunch of people were willing to jump on that bandwagon with Apple that, Hey, this is finally a company that cares about our privacy. And then they take, they just veer left turn. And I go to my friends like Ryan and say, Hey, Ryan, you are all on board with this. What do you think now? And he goes, I'm completely off board now. I don't even know what to think. That doesn't, that again, that seems like an impedance mismatch. Steve, you have any thoughts? So I think that to, the idea of serving your customer is probably pretty accurate. And I don't think that they're not serving their customer by making this move. I don't have to agree with it, but I do have to recognize that the user base that that is concerned about the moves that they're making recently are rel- relatively small. And while we may be noisy in our own circles, we're probably not the overall target audience. They're probably targeted mm. at, at people who say, you know what, I like it that they force apps to tell me what, they're, what permissions they're using, or I like this kind of granularity. And, you know, I think that we should do what we can to help... Um, stop child pornography or you know whatever egregious social bad that's out there totally and there are a lot of people that are willing to make that Um, trade-off just as an anecdote there's um, in North Carolina they are making they're spending a large amount of money to essentially alert the surrounding areas of people who have even been accused of some sort of sexual crime or aggressiveness they call it domestic crimes and this just kind of shows you what's happening is you all you have to be is accused. And then all of a sudden, people in your area are aware of where you are because you have to carry this thing until your your name is cleared. And it seems that this is the way that we are going as a society. And so if that is the way, that is obviously trading, trading that privacy for something else. And maybe Apple actually is serving their user base by doing this. Excellent point. I, I want to move on to uh, our third email, which comes in from a David. I think I'm pronouncing that right. He writes, Windows 10 has a volume shadow service, VSS, that allows apps like Casper to make full images and bootable clones of Windows disks while they're mounted and running. Any apps do this for Ubuntu? I want to make images and clones of my Ubuntu 2104 drive while it's mounted and running. Can this be done with LVM? 
Can LVM be run on X4? Ubuntu 2104 system, or is LVM, is this for servers only? I'm using TimeShift to take regular daily system snapshots, and that's working great, but I also want to make full images and clones without unmounting my main drive and without booting from a live USB stick. I read about something called Continuous Data Protection, or CDP, and Linux Hot Copy, but it seems that that only works on Linux Ubuntu servers. Thanks, and love your show, David. So, Steve, I'm going to actually probably throw this one to you. Uh, do you know much about, essentially, shadow copies and how that would work on Linux? So I don't know the Windows side of things pretty much at all, but I am familiar with how, uh, for example, a VM is able to motion from one host to another. And it's a similar idea at cloning a hard drive as it is moving a, a VM from one host to the other. And it has to do with essentially taking a, a point in time and doing your best to do a backup and then attempting to rect like rectify any changes that have happened from that point. So let's let's take a really good example. Okay. You decide I'm going to take a snapshot right now, right? I want to take a backup, my system is live. So the system has to take a guess of like okay, I'm going to make a point in time and say at at, you know, 18 23 and 23 seconds, this is when I'm going to start copying all of my data. And by the time I get done, maybe it's 18 24 23. So in that minute's time, it has to then go back and say, okay, what has changed over the last minute? And then recopy those files. And so it's it's kind of a complicated process to make a concise point in time on a live image. I'm not aware of any software that does this specifically for the Linux desktop. I'm sure that there are some out there, but it, it is quite difficult. And Probably the best way to do this would actually be to have a file system like ZFS that has this built in because at ZFS, it's basically able to take a snapshot instantaneously and it doesn't have to go back and figure out what blocks have changed since I took my snapshot. Uh, you can join the discussion by going to geeklab.ninja. There you can also join our interactive Jitsi room. Atypical joins us from the Jitsi room. Hey, Atypical. Yeah, so to tie into what um, he, uh, Steve was saying, ButterFS also has the ability to do snapshots. And uh, from Conan in the chat, he's saying that TimeShift also supports um, ButterFS snapshots. So a snapshot, for those that don't know, is it, on a copy and write file system, it takes a snapshot of the environment right then and then lets everything continue writing to the disk. So you have a instantaneous snapshot of what the file system looks like at that time. Awesome. So using you know using file systems that are copy on write, ZFS, ButterFS, and using those snapshots and backing up based off the snapshot would give him what he's looking for. There we go. And we found something that Butter ButterFS can do that ZFS presumably can't, or at least uh, isn't specifically designed to use their own GUI front ends to manage it. So that's kind of exciting too. Scott writes in with our fourth email and says, Hi, Noah. I recently got a disruption from my home internet service due to a power outage. In order to restore internet service, I bought a Netgear LM1200 LTE modem. While the modem worked fine with my Ting T Mobile SIM card for browsing, I was unable to forward ports on my PFSense box to my local computers. 
I confirmed that the modem was in bridge mode and then checked the WAN address on the PFSense, which was a 30.xx. According to what is my IP, the IP address was a 172.xx. I see the port forwarding didn't work, or I see why the port forwarding didn't work, excuse me, but I'm unclear on why I have two different seemingly public IP addresses. I'm hoping that you can shed some light on what's happening here or offer a workaround to get around port forwarding uh, over LTE. Thanks for all you do, Scott. So cell phone networks often have their own little network inside of the Internet. And so your quote unquote public IP address, your real public IP address versus the IP address that your hotspot, even in a bridge mode, is handing out may be different. Uh, Steve, your thoughts on this uh, before we even got on, on, on air, you were saying this is also likely uh, an issue of double nap because of carrier grade. Yeah, so if you remember back to our our networking stuff, we talked about NAT, which is the network address translation. So how you go from a public IP to a private IP. So what happens in in these cases often is that the public IP is actually buried behind a bunch of networking in the telco's data center. So like, for example, Ting will have a public IP somewhere. But in, or, in order for them to cut down on network overhead, they're not going to issue all of their clients a public IP. They give them an internal Ting IP, and then that gets out to the Internet. And so what, what's actually happening is there's multiple layers of translation that's happening, which is why the port forwarding doesn't work. In order for it to work, it would have to Ting would have to forward, port forward for you to your little uh, LTE modem, and then your LTE modem has to be in bridge mode to pass it through to PFSense, which could then forward the port. And this is really, really tricky. And the only real way to get out of this is to basically create a VPN out to a, a point where your PFSense connects to a VPN outside of all of that stuff that you can't control, and then you forward ports that way. And you could do that on DigitalOcean with something like WireGuard, have WireGuard reach out to like a DigitalOcean droplet, and then the DigitalOcean becomes, or the DigitalOcean droplet becomes your public IP, that becomes your ingress point, and and then all of your data flows in between that data center connection. So, could be a thought for you. Our fifth email comes in from, I hope I get this right, Yakok. Yakok writes in and says, Noah, what router would you suggest for a home that has a dedicated Wi-Fi user for a corporate working from home job and 30 devices that connect to the home network? I've heard you talk about Ubiquity products on your show before, but I also thought you've used Microtech. I've searched the show notes and listened to try to see where you stand today. Thanks, Yakok. So, I have recommended Microtech products for a long time, but one of the things that initially drew me to Microtech and one of the reasons I really like them is that they're a company that builds uh, network carrier grade products specifically for WISPs. And so they're, they fit perfectly well in an ISP. And the great thing about Microtech is you can use the same routing operating system that they use on their $30,000 router all the way down to a $35 router that you can buy on Amazon and have shipped to your house. So that's where Microtech excels. Now, as far as the inter- interface, as far as their commitment to open source, as far as uh, the community around them, 
that's where Microtech kind of falls off. It's a really powerful router that you can get for a really low budget. And so that I think that's where it really shines. If you have a budget of $200 or more, I would highly encourage you to look at PFSense. And we have switched all of our standard deployments at AltaSpeed over to PFSense. We do it in a couple of different ways. The entry-level netgate device that you can buy is an $1,100 or $1,100 is a $200 device called the SG1100, and that is a basic uh, uh, PFSense firewall, and we have used that successfully in fairly large environments to include hotels which have hundreds of uh, connected devices all at the same time. Now, with VLANs, you can go ahead, even though there are only three physical interfaces on the back of the SG1100 you can break out those interfaces via VLANs onto a switch. And so as a demonstration for a client, we connected a WAN cable into the PFSense WAN port. We created a trunk out of the PFSense into a trunk port on a 48-port switch and then split out 48 different VLANs just to demonstrate that just because it's a tiny little box, you can do it. It doesn't necessarily stop your capabilities. And that's largely thanks to the power of PFSense. Now, where uh, NetGate kind of falls down, in my opinion, First of all, they don't officially support virtualization, and that's a huge knock against them if you ask me. When you have a client that has spent ten, fifteen, twenty thousand dollars on a really nice virtualized uh, host, and then on top of that, they have to go buy an additional piece of hardware to run a piece of software that you could trivially uh, virtualize, that's a very frustrating thing for me to tell a client. And so for those instances, we've started to look a little bit more at OpenSense. The other thing that is frustrating is they 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 don't prevent you from loading it onto your own hardware, but they won't officially support it. And so if you purchase a Netgear device and you pay full price for it, you still don't get support. You have to pay extra for that. And it's I think it's 500 bucks, 300 bucks, 500 bucks, something like that. And you can get a year of support, but you have to add that on top of that. But you have to have an official Netgate device to get that support that you have to pay on top of. On top of all of that, the cheapest rack mount device you can buy from them is a thousand dollars. And so you are a, a business. And so you say to yourself, well, we want a little, you know, for you rack or a little for you wall mount bracket that we're going to put a router or switch a PDU and a patch panel in. And we're just going to have a little network. You're maybe you have 15 devices and your entry level router starts at a thousand dollars. That's simply just a non-starter for a lot of budgets. And so for those, uh, scenarios, again, we've kind of looked more at OpenSense and gone over to Newegg and purchased, uh, one new rack mount router appliances that, to be fair, you can buy them pre-installed with PFSense. Although, so far as I understand it, uh, you should, if it's coming from China and it has the operating system preloaded, you should at the very minimum reload it. You should also understand that you won't get any support from NetGate if you run into problems with that. So for all of those reasons, depending on where you're at, I would tell you if you have the budget, go with a PFSense box device. If you're in that $200 budget, you can get away with the 1100 If you want something that's rack mount, you might consider purchasing a, an, a rack mount appliance from something like Newegg and loading PFSense on it yourself. Or if you want to take your chances, just take whatever it comes with. Uh, and if you want an official rack mount netgate device, then your budget has to be a thousand dollars or more. And those are kind of your options. If you want to virtualize, um, you can do it for yourself. Uh, you could probably virtualize PFSense, but again, they won't officially support it. Um, and so a lot of people have started to, to, to move open sense for that. But certainly if you work from home, 
uh, PFSense is your friend. Part of that comes into the community that's around PFSense. So when you have a problem and you say to yourself, I can't get my VoIP phone, my company just switched to this VoIP platform and that doesn't work, your chances of Googling PFSense, blah, 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 VoIP platform, not connecting one-way audio, whatever it is, your chances of returning success on PFSense are going to be substantially higher than returning a result on something like Microtech. And so for those reasons, I would highly encourage you to go with PFSense or OpenSense. Additionally, the UI and functionality of PSNs is absolutely amazing. On Microtech, it used to take us about 45 minutes to an hour to set up site-to-site VPN, um, and we were doing that with IPsec, which wasn't a particularly efficient way of doing it. On PFSense, it's literally minutes, um, and we're using OpenVPN, and so everything is much more performant. Additionally, you can spin up multiple v- OpenVPN servers, and so you can have one that's doing uh, a site-to-site for one place, one that's doing site-to-site for another place, and then a third one that's doing uh, like a Road Warrior connection. So if you have all of your work stuff set up from home, let's say, and then you're traveling, you could even VPN back into your house and potentially have your little corporate, your little mini corporate environment uh, sitting there at home and you're able to access it from anywhere. So a lot of, lot of reasons that I would, I would highly encourage you uh, to look at, uh, at PFSense. Now, Linux Ninja in the chat room says he absolutely loves IPsec. He uses it to get it up and running on Juniper hardware in the data center. And indeed, so one of the things that, uh, one of the things that we do for clients is we have some medical clients that they provide out uh, like uh, contracted medical services, so either imaging services to other places um, where the the facilities actually take the medical images and then they send them in to our client, and then our client goes in and says, "Okay, well, I'm going to as a physician uh, look at the medical images and and render a, a diagnosis." So in that case, you're working with a number of different hospitals, you're working with a number of different clinics. So HIPAA comes into play there, right? Because we only need we, we can only allow access to to the resources that they need to be able to get access to. Additionally, it all has to be encrypted because of patient privacy, right? And so, but we also have to be able to interface with a, a bunch of different hardware with a bunch of different protocols and all of that. IPsec is is one of the is nice because it works with everything. It works with Juniper. It works with Cisco. It works with Zeisel. It works with uh, you know all of these various brands that all have their different way of doing things, and we can get an IPsec tunnel to come in to PFSense and then our client just sits there behind their one PFSense box. They have a 7100 and they can see all of these clients, uh, their remote side of their network. And then that hospital exposes the particular share, the particular piece of equipment that we want to pull information from. And you're able to do that. So lots of, uh, lots of functionality there built into PFSense. Now, Steve, I know you've been a PFSense user for a long time. Uh, what are you running it on hardware wise? And what do you think of it? I'm running PFSense on a hmm, – it is kind of like a NUC-like, but but I specifically chose the one that has the AES and I uh, offloading on the CPU. And uh, I haven't had any problems with it. Um, I've never exceeded the – or even came close to hitting the one gig because I've never been in a place where Internet is like that. So ask me in a couple of weeks because I'm getting gigabit internet uh, this week and uh, this will be the first time I'm throwing that at this little box and we'll see how it does. In the news this week, we uh, I, I want to start out by talking about uh, a new open source device that is going to help with timekeeping. Now, I want to start by saying this. Every device that keeps time suffers from drift. Drift is 
your clock will not stay accurate for very long. Now, you can see this in a very simplistic fashion. If you go find like a grandfather clock, you'll see that over time, as the as the uh, as the pendulums run out of weight, the, the clock slows down and it stops. You'll see that in battery operated uh, devices that as the battery gets weaker, the clock slows down, the hands slow down on the watch, right? And it eventually stops. But even digital devices suffer from drift. There is no such thing as a device that keeps perfect time. So the closest we have is what's known as atomic time. Now, atomic time is using cesium-123 and the atoms essentially oscillate and they oscillate so precisely to be exact, 9,192,631,770 times in a second. And so we can measure that and we can determine exactly what one second is. Now, even a cesium-133 atom that's oscillating is not perfect, but it drifts one second in, get this, 100 million years. So for our purposes, it's essentially perfect. Um, and so this is this is being done, but unless, of course, you want to handle nuclear material on your wrist, which is not feasible for most people, let alone in their house, um, that's not a viable option. So there are two ways that we transmit this information out of a facility that has a perfect timekeeping device based on cesium-133. And the first way is over a device uh, called a GNSS receiver, which is essentially what's used to, to send time uh, over the GPS, global positioning system. Obviously, a latitude and longitude uh, is, is, is what we eventually want to determine, but the satellites are in orbit, and so they use time to calculate exact positions. So we can get an exact time over the radio. I will be a geek here for a second and regress to nerdum and tell you that you can also get an exact time by tuning into 10 kilohertz. And uh, you'll hear on any si- single sideband receiver, you can tune in and you can hear the, the signal being broadcast. And it'll, it, it will, you'll hear a tone. It'll go at, at the tone. The time is, and then, you know, at this point, 637 PM. Beep. And that tells you the exact point in time where you could set your watch or, or sync up. Now, obviously, Listening to a verbal radio broadcast, probably not the most efficient way to sync a bunch of servers. So Facebook wanted to find a better way. Currently, the best way to synchronize a computer's time system is to use something called NTP or network time protocol. Now, network time protocol works about how you might expect. It's tied to the atomic time service. And so it takes a signal and then encodes it into a network packet and then we send it all over the network. And so this is how your computer, this is how your cell phone is uh, often getting time. Well, actually, your cell phone can do it two ways. It can actually use the GNSS receiver or it can uh, get it over NTP. But I digress. When you check that little box that says automatically set my time and date, that's how it's doing it. It's getting over NTP. And so various companies run NTP servers that either go out to a more authoritative server or have a GNSS receiver built in and then produce network time protocol. So a a group of Facebook engineers sat down and said, there's got to be a better way to do this. And so they built a more accurate timekeeping device that literally fits on a PCI Express card. And then they contributed this to the Open Compute Project. Now, you might remember we talked about the Open Compute Project a few weeks ago. This is a new way to think about building data centers. At a basic level, Oleg Oblivork, a production engineer at Facebook, says it's simply pinging this device to keep time on the server. And so each device reports in and is able to establish time. Now, the timekeeping boxes, 
they have commercial timekeeping boxes that have a GNSS receiver in them and then produce this network time protocol inside of a data center so that if the internet fails, they can still keep time. Because obviously making sure everything is on operating on the same time is hugely important in IT, especially when you get to backups and stuff like that. If you're shutting something down and something has to back up and something has to come back up, making sure everything is operating on the exact same clock uh, can be essential. Um, but the problem is that these time appliances rely on a couple of key components. So that GNSS receiver that I spoke about, which is essentially a high stability oscillator. And, uh, the, 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 the other side of that is that these boxes are proprietary in nature. And so when they needed security features or when they needed maintenance or when they needed to monitor what was going on, they always had to go back to the vendor and they would ask for a new feature or they would ask to be able to look into something. And then they would get answers like, well, that's a proprietary box. We can't really share that with you. Or if they did do, if they did make some changes, it would take a long time to get there. And even then the changes wouldn't be exactly what they wanted. So they said, we are going to start from scratch. And so they designed this device uh, an open timekeeping appliance that has this GNSS receiver in it and then receives the, uh, is able to keep perfect time and, or at least as close as we can get to perfect time and then send that out and allow other servers to sync over NTP. Steve, I, I know, I don't know if you've worked in a data center per se, but undoubtedly you've dealt with NTP. What do you think about encoding this onto a, a single PCI device? So I definitely work with NTP, and it has been not only critical but also a big bane because things like auth will authentication will fail if you're in some of my environments. If you're a second or two off, your auth will fail because of how sensitive the environment is. Um, keeping it on a PCIe card—that's interesting. I haven't read too much about how this is working, so I I can't really comment. But I would say that. For some of my clients where they are willing to be that stringent on the time, I could see them adopting something like this. Linux Ninja in the chat room says that if they had a server in production that was off by more than 12 milliseconds, they had to take that server offline and then troubleshoot why the clock wasn't in sync. Um, I've, I've, I guess I've never worked for a client that has had that tight of a time constraint with NTP Typically, as long as we're in the same hour, uh, we're close enough because that's where we start to affect backups and stuff like that. But um, I have dealt with this in in a large degree in broadcast because so in broadcast, every second counts. And so oftentimes what you'll do is you'll be taking a feed from a network. And so the network comes in at a specific time and exits at a specific time. And the automation system has to be able to switch the inputs uh, on and off uh, right when that happens. And so there's a couple of that couple of different ways that that happens in broadcast, but one of them is uh, using a pre-done clock. And so in that event, in that scenario, if one studio is coming offline, a network's coming online, and then the network's coming offline, another studio is being brought online, all of that has to happen at the exact right second. Otherwise, you cut off the end of the news broadcast or the you cut off the beginning of the live local talent and, and those kinds of things. And so they have a master clock that sits inside of most radio stations that, again, syncs out. They just sync it to NTP because, again, we're, as long as we're within a second, it's probably close enough, um, certainly not milliseconds. Um, and, but that's, that's going over NTP. 
TCP, and so time is critically important. So the idea that an open-source device that comes out that you can install on your computer is hugely exciting to me. Additionally, I find it incredibly encouraging that the Facebook engineers designed this to be open-source from the get-go, they didn't. They didn't slow down. They didn't back off. They said, "No, we're even though we're Facebook." And I think Facebook gets an oftentimes a really bad rap for the way that they fund Facebook. But the truth is, the geek behind the geeks behind the scenes do some really fantastic work. They do some really fantastic work with ButterFS, and and they do some really fantastic work with the Open Compute Project. And this is just another tremendous example of how they're contributing to the open source community. So you can read more if you want the uh, the, the the gory details. We'll have the TechCrunch article linked in the show notes, podcast.asknoahshow.com. Element is introducing voice messages. So a new version of Element is out. It's available on all three platforms. You can read more at element.io on their blog. And they introduce voice messages. So this is now introduced as a first-class citizen. On mobile, you now get a little microphone button, and you have a couple different options. You can either hold the microphone button to record a voice message, which then can be played back on on the other recipient's device or the group's device, or you can drag it up to lock the recorder if you're sending a very long message, and then you can review that message before you choose uh, to send it. They also give you the little animated waveform. Now, this has been a, a highly requested feature from Element, and I know having used Element uh, as a production messenger at UltaSpeed, oftentimes I get texts in the field that say, hey, you know what, can we just jump on a call because it's easier to explain it? And if I'm busy and we need to do that asynchronously, that's proven to be kind of a downfall. And so as soon as this feature was announced, I ran into our team room and I was like, guys, look at this. And they're like, this is amazing. This is going to change everything. So that's really fantastic, but it doesn't stop there. They've also introduced an entirely new design for one-to-one voice message and video calls. So this is apart from the native Jitsi integration. This uh, is is direct one-to-one uh, voice communication. So you can create a call just as if you were calling somebody on the phone. And it comes complete with screen sharing on Element Web and the desktop. They also have improved the intelligent call entries in your conversation timeline. So it now tells you how long you were on a call and will even let you answer calls from the timeline on web or desktop. They're also going to tell the other person when you're on mute. And so you can even play the switchboard and put the call on hold if you need to step away for a second or something like that. Now, if you look hard enough, you're going to be able to find the dial pad. And while the dial pad isn't probably particularly useful for most users today, what it does is it signals that they're getting ready to let you talk on the public phone network in the future. This is massive. When we had Matthew on right after Southeast Linux Fest, he spoke about this public network or public telephone network integration into Element. And so the skinny is this. You will be able to use Element as a SIP client for your business. And so your phone calls come in, they they hit the phone tree, whatever, and you say, hey, I want to dial you know, Noah's extension. You dial Noah's extension. Instead of getting a call on my cell phone, which is where it comes now, either gets forward to my cell phone or comes in through the app, now that app is Element. So if I'm on Element, which I pretty much live on all day long, it comes in on my desktop, it comes in on the web, it comes in on my phone, I can call other people in my organization, and it all happens in one messaging platform. Now, one of the most important things uh, that they feel like they finally killed off is the old gray, green, black transition that used to show sending of messages. So it would show you when the message had been transmitted to the server, uh, when it had been posted to the room, and then when the recipient had actually read or seen the message. And the problem was it gave an unfair impression about how fast or slow the app was. In practice, the speed at which the message was able 
to be sent was actually really being limited by the network. So now they've changed it. There's a little circle and the circle when you send a message is filled with a little check mark when the message is received by the server, when it's been posted to the room. And then once people read the message, their, 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 their chat head moves down to show you that they've then seen that message. Another huge improvement in the timeline is the addition of blurred placeholder thumbnails on Element Web and Desktop and Android. And so this technique is called blur hash and it lets the sender include a very small compact description of the blurred thumbnail when they send a file, the thumbnail on Matrix. And what that means is instead of seeing the uh the 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 little blank thumbnail gap, it now shows you a blurred image that will get clear as the image actually downloads and so that's available in 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 the in the latest release on encryption they've made some major improvements on element web and desktop a few days ago when you invite somebody into a private encrypted conversation the app will automatically share the conversation history with them assuming that the history is set to be visible previously this silently failed is a huge bummer for us actually because a lot of the Rooms that we use at AltaSpeed have to be encrypted because we either have customer information in there uh, or there's or there's stuff that just can't get out into the public. And so the problem is we invite a new team member in and somebody will say, well, scroll back up and chat and go grab this piece of information. Well, that doesn't actually work, or at least it didn't actually work. It will now. The biggest thing by far that they have on the horizon is spaces, and this will be coming out of beta. And this is going to be letting everyone curate a set of rooms. So it's essentially the, your ability to organize your room infrastructure. You can organize them either in private spaces to where you say, here is all of my work chats, here's all my personal chats, here's my most important chats, those kinds of things, as well as community-style organization. So you'll find this at Linux Delta. We did this at Southeast Linux Fest this year. You could join the Southeast Linux Fest space, and it automatically would allow you to be invited into a particular set of private rooms. And so as long as you're a member of the space, you have the ability to join those private rooms. We also use that at AltaSpeed. We hire a new employee, we onboard them, we invite them into the space, and boom, Bob's your uncle. They automatically exist in all of the rooms that we want them uh, to be in there. And so this means that you're not going to have to explicitly invite users to enjoy all of the private rooms in your organization. This is a pretty big change. Now, you just add them to the space. They'll be automatically available to see all of the hierarchy in that space and have the correct permissions. And so uh, they also have landed a community to space migration tool. And this is going to kind of help kill off the community features and move everything over to spaces as gracefully as possible. And I've seen this come up in discussions before. Say, hey, really excited that you have this new ability to have spaces, but what's going to happen to the old communities if we've been using it? Um, they're trying to migrate that as gracefully as they can. Pine Note is in the news again, a high-end e-ink reader and the most powerful Quartz 64 single board computer available. You can read more at pine64.org. They've also released the Pine Phone keyboard, and that has now entered production. And so this is going to give you a physical keyboard on the Pine Phone. So by far the biggest announcement here. And you can go to their website to see a list of everything they do. Again, I can't commend Pine enough, Pine64 enough for the way and the clarity and the transparency in which they give their potential customers and the community. But the Pine Note is easily the biggest uh, announcement here. It is one of the, if not the most powerful e-ink device available on the market. And it shares the Quartz 64 uh, pedigree, sporting the same RK3566 quad-core A55 SoC paired with 4 gigabytes of RAM and 128 gigs of eMMC flash storage. Now, 
The Pine Note is fitted with two microphones. It features two speakers. It charges with USB-C woo, uh, for fast charging as well as data and includes a 5 gigahertz Wi-Fi AC. The inner frame or the midsection is made out of magnesium alloy. So this is very similar to the Pinebook Pros. And then the back of it is a grippy plastic cover that has cutouts for the speakers. Now, the e-ink panel itself is covered with a scratch-resistant glare, reducing hardening glass. And the entire assembly comes in at just seven millimeters thick, which, by the way, is one millimeter thinner than the Kindle Oasis 3. So if you've ever had a chance to pick one of those up and you kind of get an idea of the thickness of the Oasis 3, this is going to be one millimeter thinner. The screen is 10.3 inches, a three by four panel. Get this resolution 1404 by 1876. That's 227 DPI and can display 16 levels of grayscale. So a couple things here. This is Pine 64. Every time I buy a Pine device, I pay whatever it is I pay for it, and I get it, and I think to myself, man, this is easily worth twice the amount of money I pay for it. I would have easily paid twice the amount of money that I paid for this thing. And that tells me a couple of things. First, it tells me that they are in insane value for what you pay for. But the second thing that comes into play here is that when you buy these devices, they're constantly under-promising and over-delivering. They constantly tell you uh, you're going to get this thing and then you get more. And so every time I've ever held a Pine device, I've been pleasantly surprised. It would have been completely acceptable to me if they had come out with a low resolution screen. At the end of the day, it's literally just displaying text. Why do you need a super high resolution screen? And this screen at 1404 by 1872 has a higher resolution than most of the laptops I see being sold at Best Buy for $900. It has, again, like I said, 16 levels of grayscale. It features a front light with a cool white to warm amber light adjustment. Then on top of the e-ink panel sits a capacitive glass layer for the finger touch-based input. They have a Wacom electromagnet uh, EMR-based pen input. And I wasn't aware of this, but that EMR pair, uh, pen input is a universal standard. So Wacom sells a bunch of different EMR pens, and you can buy third-party EMR pens. So they're going to be selling an EMR pen with a Pine Note. But if you don't like it, or if you already have an EMR pen that you're used to, well, the Pine Phone, or the, excuse me, the Pine Note is going to work great as long as it's compatible with that Wacom EMR standard. Uh, it features a faint LED power for an on-off indicator as well as a previous next page and an eraser button. Now, I want to be clear about this because Pine 64 is clear about this. The Pine Note is available for early adopters for $399. But what you have to understand is that the early adopter edition, they're it's a full device, so they ship with the magnetic cover. It works with the onboard uh, um, hall sensor. They have uh, – you can put the device to sleep, and it can work with a pen. But they're going to be shipping this device with uh, a Manjaro uh, atop a BSP kernel 4.19, and unless they get the, dev, the, the drivers to work with uh, kernel 5.xx, in which case then they'll iterate on that kernel. But the, the user interface that they're currently – uh, that they're currently working with at, at, at the KDE folks is trying to figure out if Plasma Mobile is going to work or if they need to make some tweaks or if that's even really the best fit for the device. And so they're not really sure how that's going to work. And so they're very open and honest. The software on this device, it's not finished yet. It's a prototype. And so if you're looking to buy a Pine Note in the first batch, then they say, in, and I'm quoting here, you must expect to write software for it, not write notes on it. The software shipping from the factory will be the first batch not sustainable for taking notes, reading ebooks, writing your dissertation. It may not even boot into a graphical environment, 
but we're still excited for what you'll be able to create on this device and take the journey with you. By the way, this is the exact same level of transparency that they gave us with the Pine Book. It's the exact same level of transparency that we got with the Pine Time. All of those devices and the Pine Phone, all of those devices drastically exceeded my expectations. All of those devices eventually got to a point where it was as good as any other production device. My Pine Book is easily better than any Chromebook I've ever used. Oh, by the way, I can load whatever operating system I want onto it. Oh, by the way, it's literally groundbreaking as far as what you're getting for the price point that you're getting at. So I don't have enough good things to say about the Pine Note, and I can't tell you how fast I am going to run, not walk, to the Pine Store and purchase one of these. I absolutely am happy to put my own software on it. I'm absolutely happy to watch this device unfold because A, I'm sure they're probably going to increase the price later on. It's also the best e-ink device out there. And oh, by the way, I've been looking for one for a long time. I haven't found one that worked natively with Linux. I didn't find one that, that didn't work well with the cloud. This checks all of the boxes. Steve, have you ever thought about an e-ink device? And if so, what do you think about the Pine Pine Note? Uh, I have an old Sony one, and I used it for a long time. I still have it. I just never got around to using it again because um, with the type of shift in work that I do, Audible makes more sense. But if I was more stationary, I did really enjoy reading on the uh, on an e-reader. And I have, I've actually looked at the Pine stuff quite a few times. And uh, while I was in Canada, it was much harder to get. And it's been in and out of stock, or I would probably already have the pine tablet. I'll tell you this. I, I don't, I'll be honest with you. I really struggle uh, with just sitting down and reading. My attention span doesn't really lend itself to it. Um, And I also don't have a lot of time to just sit there and read. So like you, I tend to consume books over, uh, over audio form. However, documentation is almost always comes to me in, in written form. Um, I also try to be as simplistic as I can when it comes to reading the Bible because I, I don't like super complicated things uh, there. I want to get away from distractions. And then when it comes to taking notes, I just want to be able to jot things down with my hand. And, the, and, and all of those things have led me down the path of a notepad. Now, I will be honest with you and tell you that I have been re- I've continued to explore the idea of a companion device. And right now, I'm slowly moving off of Sailfish OS onto my GPD Pocket, mostly because there are just more features on the GPD Pocket. But when I see what is coming out, with the Pine Note, I say to myself, a lot of the things that I want to do, reference a piece of, uh, of documentation, uh, jot a quick note down, take some time to read uninterrupted and away from the internet and away from distractions, the Pine Note, again, checks all of those boxes. And so I kind of envision a world in where people can come in and say to me, hey, I just joined your company. And I say, okay, well, here's your laptop. Here's your phone. Here's your YubiKey. Oh, by the way, Here's your Pine Note, and on your Pine Note, you'll find a copy of our our employee manual, and so you can go there and read a, a list of all of our uh, our policies and stuff like that. You'll also find a folder that has all of the documentation for the software that we deploy by default, the hardware that we deploy by default. We have something called a quick reference guide that basically has like, hey, I'm in an emergency and I have blank problem with you know virtualization, routing, whatever. How do I fix these things? And then there's a, a flowchart to to go through and troubleshoot those things, having those available on a device that doesn't require the internet probably is excellent on battery life. And uh, you can reference and have just in your bag 
seems absolutely fantastic. So I, again, don't have enough good things to say about the Pine Note. Uh, when I get mine, I'll let you know what I think of it. But if if everything else that Pine 64 has done is any indication, then what you'll get for $399 is probably closer to a seven dollars or $800 uh, e-reader. Hey, the music in my ears means we're out of time, but don't fear. The show continues 24-7, 365 over at AskNoahShow.com. Podcast.AskNoahShow.com if you'd like to get all of the show notes and articles that we use to reference and create the show, as well as a bunch of stuff that we just didn't have time to get to. You can follow me on Twitter, at Colonel Linux. You can follow the show at AskNoahShow. We'll be back next Tuesday. We record live every Tuesday at 6 p.m. Central, AskNoahShow.com. Have a good week. 